welcome once again to Radio Morecorp. We made it to a second episode, thus putting us ahead of a new revolt, lazy sitcom pilots. Mm-hmm. Um, I searched for an example there, a witty example, and failed thoroughly. Uh, I am, as ever, or as most of the time I am at least, Colm Cairns, and with me is Rose Fortune. How are you doing, Rose? Good, thank you. And we are here today to talk to you about the Life Fantastic the second entry in Terry Pratchett's Discworld series, and as I mentioned in our last episode, this was the first Discworld book I ever read, so I've I've got a lot of a lot of residual love for this one. Um, so I suppose leading with someone less biased than me, uh, Rose. What well, I suppose right up to bat, like what were the, the these are Life Fantastic and the Color of Magic are really the only two Discworld books that are like directly interlinked. You know, Life Fantastic is a direct sequel of. Uh, Color Magic. I think the the only one that, that comes closest that Lords and Ladies follows right up where Witches Rod left off, and right. like where's it go? But you know you don't have to have read one to read the other. Mm-hmm. And as I uh, showed with Life Fantastic, you don't have to read Color Magic to read or hear as it would be in my case Life Fantastic either. But um, but they're certainly you know their plots are wholly interlinked and um, they they kind of depict a sort of similar wilder disc world that we spoke earlier so i suppose uh given that they're so closely closer linked than any other two disc world books to one another what did you feel were the big differences between this and the color of magic oh wow um first of all i suppose how much this actually focuses on basically two or three different areas mm-hmm. so whereas the first one is like a tour of the entire disc world with all these different regions that you might never have heard of before and might never hear of again this one really focuses on Unseen University. Yeah. Focuses on, on Ankhmore Fork and focuses a little bit on, you know, Rincewind and Two Flower being going from here to there to <laughs> all over the place. Yeah. But it always comes back when it's segueing between Unseen University, it comes back to this fixed point in Ankhmore Fork. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed a lot more fixed because of that. They travel. Rincewind and Two Flower probably travel about the same distance as they do in the first one, but because you have a counterpoint that's actually fixed in yeah, one set yeah. place, it feels less of an interruption. Yeah, it's anchored. And actually, I, I was thinking about that, and I thought that uh, even all the places you do have that kind of Rincewind and Two Flower travelogue that they kind of bound around from one, you know, fantasy set piece to another. Mm-hmm. But really, I was thinking the only one that is. If, if you're being quite harsh and utili- uh, narratively utilitarian about it, the only one uh, episode, as it were, that's really superfluous to the plot is when they're in the, the troll bones um, with the uh, with the trolls and uh, Two Flower and, and, and Cohen and Beth and getting kidnapped by the mercenaries and that, like that. You know, everything else they do, like they pop up in the forest, first of all, and... Um, uh, Oh yeah, I've neglected what I meant to. I meant to lead with today was mm-hmm. to give uh, a rundown of the plot, a refresher for anyone who hasn't read the book in a while. Um, I suppose I'll do that now. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, uh, basically, the book begins with Rincewind having dropped off the edge of the Discworld at the end of the Color of Magic with uh, to clear the luggage and the, the potent Voyager, their ship, and they find they haven't dropped off the edge of the, uh, uh, dropped off into oblivion. They're actually just in a forest somewhere. Um, we cut to Unseen University where massive magicals goings on appear uh, and after some deliberation the wither- wizards led by Golder Weatherwax summon death and ask him what happened and he lets them know that uh, the spell that the eight great spells within the Octarvo were working to change the disc so that the eight spell the one in Rincewind's head would stay on the disc and not drop off it because they need to be said before Hogswatch Night or the disc will be destroyed Death's words, not mine. Um, the wizards naturally get a bit worried about this and they send people to hunt down Rincewind and bring him back. And himself and Two Flower, uh, obviously no big fans of being hunted down, um, uh, you know, flee and bounce around. Along the way, they uh, run into um, Betton, a girl who's about to be sacrificed to, who they rescue from sacrifice by druids. She isn't immediately happy with this, but she she uh, she learns to cope. And uh, Cohen, the barbarian, an octogenarian barbarian hero um so uh yeah i suppose the, the only other major plot development there is that golder weatherwax is killed by his understudy trimon who's a cold modernizing character 
who has read a prophecy um, saying that whoever says the eight great spells will get their heart's desire and he is determined to bring Rincewind back. Meanwhile, a massive red star appears in the sky above the Discworld and begins essentially draining all magic from the Discworld. There's caused a lot of social upheaval. There's these um, star people with a, star, a red star paint on their forehead who hunt down and persecute wizards. Uh, Rincewind and co. progress back towards Unseen University after Rincewind has a chat with the with the eight spells on a kind of, I suppose, another plane of reality. Mm-hmm. Um, they get back to Unseen University. Trimon locks all the other main wizards in a room, takes the Octarvo, says seven of the eight great spells for himself, and thus tears a hole in the fabric of reality which just demons from the dungeon I mentioned inside his mind. Mm-hmm. Um, he meets Rincewind and demands Rincewind give him back the the eight spell. Rincewind doesn't. Rincewind and Two Flower... Um, somewhat pathetically and shambolically but ultimately effectively fight tri- fight and defeat Trimon um, the spell the other seven spells return to the Octarvo and Rincewind with a little help from Two Flower and Betton say the eight spells which um, I'm, I'm a little hey, we'll get to this later I'm a little hazy on what exact what exact effect the spells have on it but the end the end result is that it turns out to, that the star is essentially a nest for star turtles like Great Hachuan and they hatch into tinier turtles uh, carrying around tiny baby planets and they float off you know on their own path throughout the universe Great Tune is pretty content and so is everyone who rests on the disc she carries around with her um, Two Flower returns home to the Agatian Empire first giving Rincewind uh, his luggage and Rincewind decides to re-enroll in Unseen University and that's about that uh, that's it plot wise and I fairly, I fairly barnstormed through that, uh, but uh, yeah, to get me thinking that, like you know, they're in the forest at the start, and that's where the wizards uh, initially sent their, you know, um, their guys after Rincewind to learn establishes that they are, you know, that they're under threat from the wizards. They go to they they then take the broomstick and end up with the druids, and that leads into the meeting Betton and Cohen, um, and then you have the I said you have the the troll thing is is the only real point where, you know. Uh, it's it's entertaining and fun, but it's just sort of killing time. Um, like Cohen, Betton, and Two Flower are captured. Rincewind sort of helps freedom, and they just go back in their way. Nothing really changes. Whereas when they get to that city, you have Cohen getting his diamond teeth, and you kind of get a get a much better feel for the effect the star is having on society with the star people. And then you get to Ankh Morpork and the the Newmont. So yeah, really, like it's 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 a lot tighter and more focused, as you were saying, on the color of magic in that way because. Um, there, there actually is a plot to it. There's a true line with the, with the star, with the disc's imminent destruction, and the efforts to by the the wizards and Trimon in particular to get Rincewind back. So that kind of helps it keep it all keep it all a bit tighter. That's true. Hmm. Also, the other thing that's conspicuously different between the color of magic and the light fantastic is death. Yeah, yeah. It's finally back to the death of all of the other Discworld novels. There's a lot of development between the color of magic and the light fantastic. All of a sudden, Hines, instead of being this petty little vendetta-bearing... <laughs> Scrofula-influenced. Yes, this thing. He's he's playing games. He he has an adopted daughter, Isabel, which yeah. I didn't realise he had Isabel so early. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, he has an adopted daughter. He's got his death of, he's got his house of death. He's playing bridge with war and famine and pestilence. And he's, he's just the death that you come to know yeah, through all of the yeah, other books. Yeah, yeah, completely. Um, and I think with, with Isabel, it's interesting because we, we talked about last time how the, you know Pratchett being a gardener rather than an architect as a writer. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I mean, Mort's only two books down the line, so it could well be that he had it in mind when he put her there. Mm-hmm. But in The Light Fantastic, she's just, she's sort of, you know, essentially she's this kind of gag, like that she's this like, that she, it's this girl in this bizarre situation, you know, she's calling death daddy and acting kind of, you know, genteel and sort of like a, you know like a, a little princess type but she's sort of like murderous because she has no real human interaction and just you know kind of like I suppose hasn't developed uh, empathy along those lines mm-hmm. but like even though she just serves a purpose as a, as that gag within the book her presence there as you said does tell you a lot about that and the fact that he would adopt a little girl is kind of just miles away from the yeah, the petty figure of the colour of magic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really well summed up in... Um, I, I just pulled up, the, pulled up the quote here. In the part where uh, 
they initially see the, the I can't remember which town it is, but they're there and the star people are ranting and raving and Rincewind and, and Tufa, which wonderfully, wonderfully ominous and just conveys such a an eerie, threatening, you know, atmosphere of this kind of like, this uh, cult, essentially, that is at once ridiculous and at, at the same time utterly threatening, like sort of really simmering away and waiting to, to boil over. Mm-hmm. But uh, when, when Rincewind meets Death here, and he, you know, he says, uh, have you come to Gloth? And, and, and Death says, when Rincewind says, it's horrible, Death agrees. And he says, uh, Rincewind says, I would have thought you'd be all for it. And Death says, not like this, the death of the warrior or the old man or the little child, this I understand. And I take away the pain and end the suffering. I do not understand this death of the mind. Which really sums up his uh, his MO and his you know, a lot of his motivations throughout the the rest of the series that as Pratchett jokes, he isn't cruel, he's just terribly good at his job. <laughs> and uh yeah, like the stuff that bothers him is the more the death of the mind kind of thing. It's like the uh the auditor the auditors of reality will later see trying to kind of, you know, suppress belief and imagination and what makes humans human. It's that kind of thing that bothers him and he just sees death as part of life. As it were, but it's not in a it's not in a, in a vindictive way, um, and yeah, I just I just think that's a really nice quote, and it just um, it said sums up the the kind of the sea change he's undergone since the color of magic. Mm-hmm. Oh, he touched on like at the, at the end of the color of magic, it's sort of indicated with his conversation with Faith that he's getting a bit more laid back, I suppose, or less less <laughs> less less vindictive. But uh, yeah. yeah, like like that yeah, that that solidifies it um, for me. Uh, yeah, what what I alluded to earlier when I was giving the plot rundown is I wasn't entirely sure, like, when when they say the eight spells at the end, is that what makes the eggs the eggs hatch and the other the the baby attunes as they were come out? Yes. Okay, and and, and if 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 they wouldn't have and if that wouldn't have happened, what would have happened? Because that says the disc would be destroyed, but like, I know it would a tune just have steered into the star and despair or something. Oh, that would have been horrible. Yeah. But plausible, yeah. Yeah. To be destroyed. Well, that or spontaneously combust or something. <laughs> from from not being able to have all of these new children yeah. on the planets. Well, I wasn't sure. Parent losing their child for home. Pretty tragic, even for astro-chileans. <laughs> True. Um, yeah, because uh, it, it, it just hit me really because uh, when I, I rewrote it for... This podcast it was the first time I had read it in a long time. And as I said, it was the first one I encountered as a kid listening to an audiobook. And as a child, because I think the, the climax of this book is really excellent. And just because that sort of uh, was so dramatically done, it sort of swept, you know, swept me away. Kind of. And I didn't really question, you know, just the symbolism of like, oh, Rincewind defeats Batty, says eight spells. Mm. You know, the, the star being life, not death. Like, all that is, is wonderfully realized that I didn't really feel the need to join the dots as a kid and say see where the cause and effect was um that you know it's curious um i one thing this is just written three years on from the color magic and i think it's noticeable as well as it being anchored by a plot you can see while the disc the disc world is still sort of that wild make it up as you go along sort of setting there's there's definitely more nuance I think to Pratchett's uh, writing, and it's it's summed up pretty well in the figures of um, Herena and Cohen, who are like much more uh, nuanced, defter, realized versions of Liesa and Heron, because Liesa and Heron and Color Magic they're they're just archetypes, you know what I mean? You kind of mm-hmm. have the, uh, the, uh, the the kind of femme fatale female en- en- enchantress barbarian, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and the barbarian hero and there's like some nice jokes on those tropes but essentially they are just those tropes they're just jokes about them mm-hmm. whereas cohen is a real twist on uh typical barbarian hero like him being older and what what living to that age as a barbarian hero means and even like uh Herena's thing where he introduces her and talks about her uh it starts going into the temptation to depict her in letters and skimpy clothing and how this is actually very silly yes. because she's much more practical than that mm-hmm. um and yeah she's obviously you know only pops up uh briefly in this book and i think is only she's 
later briefly mentioned in Eric, I think. Um, mm. But just uh, her as, as uh, that kind of like um, femme fatale warrior woman figure, it definitely seemed like there was more of a more of a twist and more thought put into her than Liesa and the other one. You know, uh, like even seeing her sort of interact and think about the the bandit she sired mm-hmm. and. Um, you know how she isn't mad about them and that uh, shift from what she thinks initially about taking the gold out of the luggage and then like uh, unlike the uh, her kind of companions eventually uh, does a bit of risk assessment and thinks okay well you know it isn't worth it mm-hmm. um it just i suppose different differentiates her in a way like realizes her a bit more as a as a slightly more detailed very like she's she's not a deep character but she's a character as opposed to a trope mm-hmm. and uh just before getting on to cohen who's just like a, a wonderful um, character. I mean, he's he's great joke fodder, and just like whenever you see this eighty-year-old, largely toothless, one-eyed old man fighting off, uh, you know, much much younger people, mm-hmm. it's like never fails to be hilarious. But I think there's there's something there's something quite touching about him talking about like not being taken seriously anymore, mm-hmm. um, uh, like with not having any teeth, um, and. That it's 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 not so much talked about here, but I think later in interesting times and things, they mention how like the thing about like he's so old because he's actually very good at what he does, and you know like that's that's how he got to be old yeah. in a life or death business, and that like his reward for that is sort of being you know just uh, this figure of fun or being seen as this has been as opposed to you know the warriors who die young would kind of live forever in people's minds as. Uh, you know these like these great heroes and whatnot. When actually they were less good at what they done than he was because they died, they lost. Uh-huh. That's true. I mean, we talked about immortality last time yeah, with Spron yeah. and his endless photographs. Mm-hmm. But this is Cohen the Barbarian actually has to deal with mortality, which is probably much worse for a barbarian. I mean, you never get to see a barbarian or a hero age like this mm-hmm. <laughs> with varicose veins on his legs in the shape of street map and oh, I had brilliant quotes about him <laughs> yeah i am i had the three things he values in life what are the three most important <laughs> oh, that's, that's <laughs> oh hot water soft laboratory paper and good dentistry <laughs> it's perfect it's so realistic and everybody else's i think one of them might have actually been a conan, a conan the barbarian yeah I, I think it is I, I think i heard that all right or it's like the, the cry of the white eagle or something it's like, mm-hmm. the lamentation yeah of when it when it really gets up oh what's the cry of the white eagle gonna get for you what's it gonna do you know <laughs> Exactly. Whereas if you had good dentistry mm. from the start, mm. it'd be a whole different ballgame. <laughs> Absolutely. I love Cohen though. I mean, it's not it's not just that he's not a trope, it's a complete subversion mm-hmm. of all of the barbarian stuff from the last book. It's just it's so intelligent. Yeah. Mm. Um actually uh, going on from Cohen to, to Betton, who I think <laughs> is is probably I mean, she's certainly not in the league of a uh, you know, any of the, the witches or Tiffany Aiken or Angular or anything like that, but she's probably the first well realized, like really well realized. Uh, um, I suppose like more, more thought put it like thoughtful female character in the in the disc world. Um, you now I say she's the first one, like it's only the second book, <laughs> but just you know, like the kind of she's unworldly. Um, being only seventeen and being a <laughs> staying a lifetime of staying in on Saturday nights, mm-hmm. as she says, and you have the bit at the end when she's reading the uh, the pictogram writing and kind of can't really doesn't really know what the, the like what is implied to be like sexual acts on on, on it uh, are, mm-hmm. um, and obviously she she doesn't seem to have been around much, but she's very practical. I mean, you have her kind of uh, facing down the wizards at the end, saying like, you know, well, you can try to do this, and you have you can do like nothing other than try, and she's the one who realizes. Um, what's gonna ride with the, the uh, with how Rincewind said the spells mm-hmm. at the end? Yeah, um, and she's like obviously devoted to Cohen, uh, and you know that's that's a kind of lovely uh, touching parts where you know he says like nobody takes you seriously, and it's like oh I do, you know, the <laughs> chiming in loyally and really seems to mean it. Like she's devoted to him, but well able to to stand up for herself as well. Mm-hmm. Um, like when she uh, shuts down that uh, the bloke who runs the magical shop. When he's, you know, kind of like just ranting and uh, sort of, you know, being being quite petty and pedantic at them. And she just, you know, instantly cuts to the point and says, it's a magical shop. Um, so I, I kind of think it's a pity we didn't learn more about her. Like why why she, um, 
what led her to be getting sacrificed in the first place. You oh, know, she sure. says, like, she says the thing about, uh, obviously, she believes that it would have sent her up to drinking mead from a silver bowl with the moon goddess. Mm-hmm. But she gets over it quick enough after kind of Cohen rescues her that, like, um, she obviously didn't have that great a life in that druidic settlement, but uh, a good enough one not to not to question it and not to leave. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a it's a pity that she doesn't uh, she isn't um, she's just gone from the series after this. I think it would have been would have been nice to see her in interesting times again as a kind of like a like a a Wendy darling to the Lost Boys to the Silver Horde, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a sort of girlfriend slash mammy to all <laughs> these like you know like old scallywags. Right. Um, yeah, uh, or at least given some kind of explanation as to why, you know, why she's gone. As it is, it's sort of a pity, and it kind of feels almost that, um, you know, uh, Bond girl style, uh, casual misogyny. You know, that's a, a, a thing I wouldn't throw at Terry Pratchett very often, and I don't think he made, But I mean, the, the effect is sort of that, like that disposable girl kind of thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, the hero just hooks up with someone and. If she's gone by the next installment, we're not going to bother explaining it because we're going to assume you don't care and you just expect her to kind of be replaced. That's um, true. No, that isn't the case with Cohen. It's not like he shacks up with a girl in every book, you know, book he's in or mm. um, like it isn't that sort of Bond girl assembly line. But I, I just think it's, she sort of uh, disappears in the same way, you know. That's true. Although I'd probably cut him the same amount of slack I would for The Colour of Magic and say these are such early books yeah, yeah. that it might just be that yeah. he sort of edits her out. She does end up being a throwaway character, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. But I can forgive it, so long as it doesn't happen in book ten and book fifteen, and you know it's, yeah. it's so early in the yeah, game. yeah. Um. I did like her a lot. I liked her and um, her and Herina. Mm-hmm. I think they're quite good counterparts in terms of he's only written these two female characters so far, and you know she's actually quite happy with her role of sacrificial virgin. Yeah. And Herina takes to banditry and takes to heroism because there's not a whole lot of jobs she can do. Yeah, yeah, that was like, uh, being a woman. What mm-hmm. am I going to do? I'm not going to clean the kitchens, so <laughs> I'll go out and I'll be a hero. Yeah, very, that, very weird motivation. It sort of uh, it kind of opened up a lot of avenues he'd later explore. I think that um, in to, like to true true Angua to a certain extent in in the watch series and um it's 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 sort of touched on in unseen academicals i think as well like the uh who's it um the two cleaner women um Mm -hmm. but sort of that they're kind of stuck in this in this rot in this uh lot they're dealt as you know like kind of like underclass women in it um and the difficulties of trying to negotiate their way out of it in any way or like that there aren't aren't that many avenues open to them Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, I when you mentioned uh, Herna, um, I, I said the bit she's he, he sort of plays with the trope when he he alludes to um, at, uh, something like hey, it's it's at this moment you might like look over the shoulder to your cover artist and talk about how they're evicted, I love which that. I really like as a joke. But how do you feel about the those jokes that like completely take you out of the book? And you know that what I mean is like at that point he stops being the sort of omniscient Discworld narrator and he becomes Terry Pratchett because like he's literally is talking about the process of writing the book oh that's true that's true I loved it for this one because I love the joke mm-hmm. and it's such a good joke to make when talking about a female barbarian to start talking about where she got her clothes and she's in leather but it's leather boots yeah and she's wearing chainmail damn it I love that I suppose if it was a joke that I personally enjoyed a bit less I might resent being taken out of the book a little bit more yeah 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 I just I noticed that I've been reading um equal rights for our for our next podcast and like that opens with a with a reference which is um actually kind of developed from a, a, a talk he gave i think soon after color of magic came out about like um uh, patriarchy and sort of sexism and how magic's depicted and you know why kind of wizards are depicted better than witches and things mm-hmm. and that's sort of equal rights he talks about like gandalf never getting married and things like that and uh i i got the point he, he was trying to make but i sort of felt a little uncomfortable with like him mentioning these other universes when, when like within a Discworld book like if, they, yeah. if it was a foreword you know that he was um he was saying oh well here's why i wrote this you know mm-hmm. i i'd like it but uh within the book itself i think those those kind of jokes they they tread a very thin line like uh, i said in this in the case of the one the life fantastic about Herena and the cover artist it's a really funny joke 
and it has the added advantage of sort of um i suppose being a being a funny joke with some kind of uh like somewhat you know like tongue-in-cheek winking but meaningful ideological comment comments about like the depiction of women and you know warrior women in fantasy and like the need to sexualize them uh and depict them in completely unrealistic ways but the joke itself is still on this tin line of you know um if if he takes the narration too far outside the world we'll leave that world too and it'll be kind of harder to get in and engage with the rest of it um i mean i can't say it's a it's a problem i had too much in life fantastic mm. but i like i'll be curious i have a feeling and I, i've never read the books true in sequence and it's been a while since i've read a lot of them i have a feeling those sort of fourth wall breaking uh jokes like decrease or kind of become a lot uh, a more subtle as the series goes on but you know we'll, we'll see um probably more subtle yeah yeah i, I noticed that uh, he hasn't used a lot of footnotes in the color yeah, magic of yeah. fantastic there's one absolutely brilliant one delight fantastic but he's not relying on them a lot yet mm-hmm. which is sort of unfortunate as well i've been looking for them mm-hmm. and not finding them a lot he had this great one and i think it was a nod to um that brilliant <laughs> that brilliant running joke he has about the patrician the former patrician who um won't allow metaphors unless they can be actually proven oh yeah yeah but he uses a metaphor where he says that something poured like molten gold <laughs> and then you've got this asterisk and this footnote at the bottom that says not precisely of course trees didn't burst into flame people didn't suddenly become very rich and extremely dead and the seas didn't flash into steam a better simile in fact might be not like molten gold <laughs> <laughs> it's great to set up some metaphor and say actually no sorry the opposite yeah. actually the complete opposite but that's one of the only ones in the life fantastic so i suppose maybe it could be because he gets better at these wink yeah to the audience like he started to actually place them separately from the rest of the narrative so that you're reading and then you, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. have to either check the footnote at the bottom and then have your laugh or you can just ignore it and keep going yeah, yeah. could be why um one thing that does get developed uh becomes like a i suppose a as much as anything is a running team throughout the entire Discworld series mm-hmm. is like the the clash and the sort of relationship between modernization versus tradition mm-hmm. um and you know you, you see a lot of times uh, uh you know again well it's something we'll see as we go on but i feel like if i were to collate it now and you know estimate it in my head it's like he, he more often than not comes down in favor of modernity in some sort of way you know what i mean like often tradition isn't kind of seen as like uh completely and utterly villainous but you know it's it's definitely like usually you think of books like say pyramids or small gods where it's uh they're kind of you know it's about the quest to evolve out of this tradition that has stagnated yeah, but i think it's in- progress yeah yeah i think it's interesting here that it's it's uh modernity or, or modernization that's it's sort of seen as a not a malignant force in and of itself, but kind of utilized malignantly by Trimon. Like uh, his 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 whole um, uh, his, his whole mo is, is that where Galder talks thinks about him and says how you know we hardly ever did any magic, and he had that huge chart full of uh, blobs and dashes <laughs> that you know nobody understood, but it looked very impressive. That's true. And uh, I love there's there's a great bit uh, later where they're they're trying to. Um, after the the wonderful death of Greyhold Spode, the uh, the old wizard who locks himself in the box and forgot to put <laughs> air holes in, in. <laughs> yeah, which is uh, you know, a gag I really liked. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the uh, you have the, the the wizards discussing who they who they will elect as his successor, mm-hmm. and Trimon they, they they just sort of take it as a matter of course that say. Oh well, it's 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 this guy because he's the second in command, and he's like, is he sound? Like he he sounds like a real kind of like a, you know, uh, upper management type, uh, like talking about like you know who who we, like who who we appoint as the new regional manager, you know, taking things like ultra seriously and using this very clinical, very kind of like you know, uh, sort of seemingly clear but also ultimately kind of uh, suffocating um, business speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I, I found really interesting. Um, yeah, and then you have um, like I'll about him just drinking, drinking boiled water, and his uh, like the, the wizards. Um, 
uh, the wizards as like as, as it goes on they'll obviously become more more harmless I suppose you know uh, like uh, the Unseen University faculty will be this collection of kind of you know lovable lovable quarrelsome duffers and uh, you know who'll occasionally pop up and do something important here and now we're still in the we're still in the early part where they're they're a big deal they're a, a you know a worldly force um right yeah uh and but there there is sort of um nonetheless there is these these hints of the the hidebound footy duties they'll later be depicted as you know like they just seem they seem utterly confused when trimon is talking about uh like questioning whether they should appoint this this new guy as, as head of one of the orders you know they, it, it takes them they've had this tried and trusted method of doing it that anyone would question it just really seems to hit them for six mm-hmm. and then they're so they're so kind of easily deceived by him at the end and locked in the room that they are sort of i suppose that's the that's the first inkling of them being you know rendered ridiculous mm-hmm. um but well, like while they uh while they obviously send guy they all of them send guys out to capture and um you know possibly kill rincewind mm-hmm. they're still very much uh small potatoes in the in the trek terms next to trimon you know he they, like they have this sort of um how would you put it like uh reliable um threat and malignancy to them where trimon being this new modern terror that you you know you don't know where he's going to stop uh to um his ends and even you have the um the, i'm just trying to find it the wonderful bit at the at the end when when rincewind confronts trimon and trimon and looks into his empty eyes mm-hmm. and it reminded me of like uh later you, you they kind of covered an eric with the sort of um with the, the the new um boss in hell trying to modernize the demons and oh, the idea right. of like like kind of even even evil being uh, somewhat traditional and being uh being somehow reliable or comforting in that tradition whereas a sort of like terrifying utilitarian no frills uh business modernizing new evil is the you know is is like a force kind of to be really feared as uh everyone's terrified of bureaucracy yeah rincewind stared and knew that there were far worse things than evil all the demons in hell would torture your very soul but that was precisely because they valued souls very highly Evil would always try to steal the universe, but at least they considered the universe worth stealing. But the grey world behind those empty eyes would trample and destroy without even according its victims the dignity of hatred. It wouldn't even notice them. And, you know, that's that's the kind of, uh, the sort of, the banality of evil, I suppose, is the phrase I've been dancing around here. Mm-hmm. That uh, was written about the concentration camp, Albert Eichmann, the concentration camp bureaucrat, um, the, like how he could sort of sign sign innumerable um people's death warrants but never never have his hand on the, the trigger or the switch and just kind of go about a normal life and obviously trimon is in much more spectacular terms than that in having you know all these dungeon dimension creatures in his head mm-hmm. but he is a sort of you know more banal uh like modern clinical evil done um done and all uh, a, a kind of more traditional demon's ripping through a hole in the sky alternative uh which i think it's 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 interesting and it's kind of put me on the lookout now as we go down the line for uh, i suppose more examples of um uh modernity and modernization being used in uh like as, as a as a force for bad or as a malignant thing um uh in, in opposition to some kind of stabilizing tradition like whereas uh before I said I'd be kind of more of the opinion that he usually comes down on the side of modernization, but now I'm now I'm I'm curious to see how I, I reassess that as we go forward. That's true. I guess it depends on what he's talking about. Like he's yeah, yeah. very selective. Yeah, he is. He's very uh, was flexible in his in his philosophy and his um, you know how he depicts certain intangible forces or uh, you know. Um, just really like grand narratives and grand terms like tradition and modernity and gender and all of these things kind of they get different depictions depending on the situation and i think it makes for a it makes for a more interesting and sort of challenging read than a writer who reasserts the same opinion over and over again 
even yeah. if, even if it may be an opinion you agree with, an opinion that is uh, put forward quite well. It's it's still interesting that he seems to kind of um, play a sort of you know uh, play play both you know all, all kinds of all kinds of different angles, mm-hmm. ideology angles. Um, it did occur to me reading uh, reading this that the, the star, as I said, we see this like it's it's this worldwide it's. It's one of the very few worldwide events depicted depicted in the Discworld, you know. That's true, yeah. Yeah, like like you see, uh, you'll see later that uh, like of you know the the world uh, being saved from certain forces, but on a very local level. Mm-hmm. Um, like I like I think the dungeon they mention uh, guys breaking it again and moving pictures is sort of limited to Warpark and uh, the witches' battle with the with the elves and and the vampires are you know like. There's the, the implication that it could go much further in Lankra, but it never does. So, you know, it, it stays there. Whereas this is worldwide, as I said, I, I don't know if it's named at all, but the first town, Rincewind, Two Flower, or Bethany and Cohen show up in and where they see the star people. Like, it's clear from that this is happening all over the place. These people are reacting hysterically and terrifyingly to the star. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it occurred to me that even though, like, a, a lot of the the elements of how the Discworld is depicted in the early books change. It, um, it, it, it sort of, uh, and, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm well used to it. I'm well aware of it. it. It sort of made it feel jarring that like, why is this never mentioned? You know, like, why, like why, uh, as, as they, all of the books very much stand alone, you know, and they, they won't often refer back, refer back to other ones, but you do occasionally see big events being mentioned. I think in, in later ones depicting the unseen academic, uh, un, unseen university, faculty they relate back to sorcery and kind of you know use it as an exploit like uh, i think in interesting times there's some there's some comment about all the faculty being really sheepish about what exactly they were doing when sorcery was you know the events of sorcery were occurring mm-hmm. and like uh you know the, the witches books and the um the city watch books still occasionally like refer back to events in previous ones but this being a worldwide thing i think i, I don't know it would have been um even if you had a passing line here or there by you know, in the inner monologue of Granny Weatherax or Vimes of remembering when that star was up there, you know. And this is just very much kind of uh, like fanboy continuity, <laughs> the fanboy continuity hounding me speaking. But, uh, yeah, it was just jarring because, as I said, when I thought about it, it is one of the very few, if not the only, worldwide event in the Discworld. And that uh, you presume that all the characters you go on to meet then must have seen this happen. And, mm-hmm. you know, it would have been nice to see them uh, think about it, you know, even just for even just for a line or two. That's true, mm. yeah. Um, going back to going back to Trimon, um, I said uh, earlier that I really liked the the uh, the end of of this book. I think I liked the sort of the uh, the daring madness of the color of magic end that it ends with the protagonist literally falling off the planet. Uh, well, one of them essentially tumming his nose at death, but jumping off into oblivion anyway. Right. And you know, I think that it's a really unusual fun end. But this, again, as you said, being anchored by a plot just has so it, it's it's not just an end; it's a finale. You know, it's a it's a climax. Like they go back to Unseen University, and you have this kind of dispel that was a uh, that was alluded to dispel Rinsome said that was alluded to in the color of magic you know finally gets a payoff they talked all about the Octarvo and what about what will the Octarvo do and you finally get a, a payoff of that you know after kind of magic being sort of um, set up as this huge force there that you actually have a, a magical confrontation of sorts you have the these things in the dungeon dimensions in uh, in Trimon's heads when and, and it really creates that sort of a that I suppose almost a I think of it as a as a Disneyish trope, and I don't mean this in a bad way. Where like the finale comes just as the villain seems to have everything in his grasp. You know what I mean? Like they get right to the point of victory. Like Trimon turns all the other seven uh, main wizards to stone, takes their positions, has the seven spells in his head. Like the uh, creatures from the dungeon I mentioned are essentially living inside his mind. We're moments away from the apocalypse mm-hmm. when it's halted, um, and that's all really fun. But did you think uh, that the the confrontation between Trimon and Rincewind, given all that, is sort of too easy? This is this is something I, I, I've read when I was reading up on um, 
the reread blog by I, I can't remember whether it's it's vacuous wastrel or there's another guy who does one called Pratchett Job. Uh, his name escapes me. I think it's I think it's Graham Neal or Graham O'Neill. Um, but one of the two of those guys in their review of Life Fantastic mentions how like the end is kind of a disappointment like that. And I'd always really like the end, but it did it did make me think that it does seem a bit. Um, you know, Rincewind just beats him around a bit, and <laughs> once once Rincewind sort of swallows his, you know, his uh, fear, like he, he gets he he's able to defeat Tryman quite, you know, relatively straightforwardly. And was that a disappointment to you, or did you did you notice that at all? I wouldn't have said it was a disappointment. Now that you've mentioned it, I I can see where they're coming from, and I can see how it might be to other mm-hmm. people. But then again, since you also mentioned earlier that we actually weren't sure what really happened with the last spell and what the consequences would have been mm-hmm. it's possible that it could have been a disappointment that way mm-hmm. that you have this massive finale you have this massive climax of these two wizards doing battle for you know the sake of the world and yet it is over quite quickly and you're not really sure what would have happened otherwise yeah and you're not 100 percent sure what happened actually it's probably the only Discworld novel that I can say that about where you're like um, well he definitely saved the world somehow yeah (laughs) but the rest it's very definitive like it's this one very uh, very I suppose conceptual Mm plotline where you sort of have the idea that something's coming and the end is near but you're just not 100 percent sure why and where and when and how. Mm-hmm. I think I think in retrospect, uh, when I was thinking about it, it's 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 only rendered disappointing disappointing by the fact that it you, you're right about the, a lot of the other endings are quite, are more conceptual, and I think I think this one it could be not quite conceptual, sort somewhat character based, and it's like this this moment of resolve for Rincewind, you know, where he yeah. You know, he, he actually doesn't run away. I mean, it, it's it's sort of building towards that throughout the book. Like in, in the color of magic, he almost instantly abandons Two Flower after meeting him. Whereas in the Life Fantastic, he journeys to Death's Domain to bring Two Flower back from the point of death after he's got cut by the Druid Sickle. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, so like you have this moment when all the other the wizards have kind of you know dismissed Rincewind as. He's, he's for once he's finally actually managed to do some magic when he opened the, the door to the room they're locked in mm-hmm. and then they sort of dismissed him and they've abandoned the possibility of victory and he's the one who's going to be doing it and you have kind of I suppose a, a victory for the sort of um, vagabond uh, kind of survivalist um, life he's led in that like it, it alludes to when he's fighting Trimon, you know, using his elbows and his knees and everything else, and Trimon wasn't used to fighting that way, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it, it's kind of his victory over the institution of Unseen University and organized magic that rejected him, and that he's always been kind of suspicious of. Like, you have him coming up to the most powerful wizard, and just sort of beating him up by doing this sort of, like, back alley, desperate fighting that that guy isn't used to at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then that ends with him what seems to be a new beginning for him where he's like, I- I'm going to re-enroll. And it, it, you know, he, I suppose retrospectively, because Rincewind continues to be a failure as a wizard, you can say that this was just his opinion, but throughout the book, when he talks about like, Oh, he would have been a good wizard of the, the spell, like the, the great spell had been in his head and scared all the other spells out. I said, retrospectively, you know, that kind of isn't true. That's him making excuses for himself, but there's no reason it couldn't be true when you're reading this, you know, you, you don't know any better. And you like, it, it does seem like he's sort of a, it's this victory and this new beginning for him. And I suppose that, um, like while life fantastic doesn't have that strong conceptual ending, a lot of other books had, it could have been a big character moment that it, it didn't turn out to be because Rinswin just sort of goes back to the way he was. Like he's, still a cowardly failure of a wizard um and i, I think it's uh i think it's pr- particularly sad given that um i i really i i really loved the parting between him and two flower and it, oh, yeah. it completely took me by surprise because i just remember it being like it is quite low-key but i mean i was i was getting really affected by it reading this time because it's so low-key and so sudden and because reading the color of magic and life fantastic back to back i really felt like i'd gone through a journey with these guys and that, like, there is, you know, there is no good way to say goodbye and no big official way. Two Flower just comes back and 
I suppose that's the same desire Rincewin has been expressing throughout the life of Asuki. He just says, I want to go home. And um, and I liked his kind of incoherent but slightly under emotionally understandable thing about never having been anywhere unless you go home to uh, to appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and their, their parting was just really, like, really lovely, I thought. Uh, and touching in a sort of... Um, low-key way and, and while well, I'm really glad Two Flower came back into it in interesting times and you know I'm quite fond of some of the Rincewind uh, re- reruns as well it's it's almost a pity they happen because this is such a good ending you know this is uh, like Rincewind seems to have battled his demons as it were I mean setting himself up for a new life Two Flower goes back home they part in you know touching but you know, understated circumstance and um yeah, and and uh, you know that that appears to be that, and yet they um, yet they pop back up, and it's a kind of it's a sense of, I think it's a sense of finality about the end of this that few other Discworld books have, like a, a lot of them obviously they resolve the plot within it, mm-hmm. but they sort of um, you know even even uh, I feel like like Guards Guards say being the first uh, City Watch book. So when it was written, or when you'd be reading it for the first time, you might necessarily know there would be more. But it ends with uh, Bethnari enlarging the watch, you know, and um, yeah. And, uh, so you you have the sense of like, oh, the watch are going to go on, and you know they're going to get bigger. Uh, yeah, and uh, like I'm, I'm trying to, I'm kind of like a loss here for other examples, but I feel even the. Um, even the the one off ones like um, pyramids, the way uh, Tepic uh, just sort of goes off in, into the distance, and you know you could, it it it, it still feels like he's continuing on a journey, whereas Life Fantastic really feels like Two Flower and Rincewind have ended their journey, and that's it, and they're done. But of course they're not done because they come back, and Pratchett, in fact, uh, said he he only wrote sorcery because he was like sort of pressured or told by a lot of people that they wanted another Rincewind book. And he kind of he said that you know he had to write forty something Rincewind books. He'd tear his hair out because uh, um, the there is only so much you can do with the character. You know, the if if you're not going to have him evolve and uh, better himself in some way, like the the coward, the reluctant hero is fun, but it's uh, like at a, at a certain stage you, you can't you can't do much more with him if he's never going to get any braver. You know, if he's never going to. Uh, alter his outlook on life in any way that makes sense yeah um and and it, it seems like he has by the end of this book but by the kind of expediency of having him having him in another book he sort of got a press the reset button on him uh yeah which which is a is a pity i i mean i'll see uh sorcery's quite uh, i kind of found out quite poorly thought of in discord circles i remember quite liking it but we'll see when we get there but uh yeah just in, in while I wouldn't wish away those that are Rincewind books, I, I think it's 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 sort of a pity a story didn't end here because it, it just is done with such a wonderful sense of finality and actual sense of like an arc for him, like a an, an emotional journey he's gone through that he's reached the end of. Mm-hmm. Um. So before, well, do you do you have anything else to say about um the the life fantastic? Not really, except for one thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not a discussion point or anything, but I just couldn't help thinking earlier when you were talking about a uh, Timon talking about whether your man is sound. Yeah, I can't help hearing it in like a Dublin accent. Is he sound though? Is, is he sound? <laughs> is he all right? Yeah. Like, um, other than that, no. <laughs> just if I was giggling at that point, of the podcast, <laughs> that's why. Okay. I hope yours is not the only giggle our podcast is raising. Oh, me too. I'm sure it's not. Yeah. We're very entertaining. No. Well, we would say that, wouldn't we? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so before we get on to, to uh, rating the, um, the Life Fantastic, I said we're, we're building this list of the best stories, but more, uh, more accurately, our favourite Discworld books in, in order as we go along. Um, so right now that list is very small. It's just going to be two books by the end of uh, by the end of this podcast. So we thought, you know, that that list making process isn't very extensive. So we thought we'd we'd flesh it out with lesser lists, mm-hmm. um, with with these lists being like elephants to the great achuan of our main list of all of the books. 
So uh, we're 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 kicking things off here with uh, it being it being two flowers. Uh, you know uh, these first two books introduced him, and it's going to be his final appearance for a good long time until interesting times. We're we're talking about the top ten Discworld tourist destinations. If you, dear listener, like us, would like to be sucked through the the pages of a Terry Pratchett book and brought to Discworld, and you've got disposable income, you find out that euros work much the same way as Rhino do. Uh, so you're just you're made of dough, um, which is kind of ironic given given now, uh, like you know, doing the exchange rates now. Um, but anyway, anyway, let's leave, leave leave heavy economics out of this. You're 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 made of money. You go into this world. Where do you want to go? This this is our top ten list anyway. Uh, number ten is Querm. It doesn't have much, but it's cheese. But they are very good cheeses. Uh, you just you, as um, as Buddy and the band found out in the animated version of Soul Music, you just uh, should be wary not to badmouth those cheeses. But I have met I have met people who are very passionate about this subject. Uh, my my friend Justine, who's from France, positively um, like shudders slashes slash froths at the mouth with rage when she talks about Americans having cheese from a can. So it is it like yeah, cheese is very much a kind of it's been like a founding pillar of her life. So I, I, you know, I feel like she she can't be the only one of one who feels so strongly about the topic. I'm sure they'd like to go to Querm. Uh, what's what's her number nine? Number nine is Lanker. Yeah, which again probably doesn't have a whole lot in the way of sightseeing, but it does have some pretty excellent witches. Yeah, go for a drink with Nanny Og. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, you could uh, you could go Mar- go go dancing up, uh, with the what are they the, the Morris dancers and the rest of them, but. Again, when when the world's not under in threat there from elves or vampires, it's probably not the most interesting place. Mm-hmm. Hence, the place on number nine. Number eight is Kroll from the Color of Magic. Pros, uh, great view, unique architecture. It's made out of old pieces of ship. Cons, you probably won't be there very long because you'll probably either be you'll presumably be sacrificed, and even if you are there very long, there's probably no way back because you're right at the edge of the rim where all the current is going. So. Um, yeah, that's a, it's kind of one way ticket deal. Um, uh, what's her number seven? Number seven is Coombe Valley, yeah. which side of great historical significance. And also a death trap. And also a death yeah. trap. I feel like when you have an experienced tour guide to you know uh, lead you around to sinkholes and so on, mm-hmm. that'd be pretty fun. Actually, like within Tud itself, I remember just trying to picture how it would look and thinking. Because he based this off a real place because this sounds spectacular. I want to go there. <laughs> uh, number six is the Agatian Empire. Um, so very big, very bureaucratic, but you know, also also uh, very 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 scenic. All that all that um, Oriental architecture in the Forbidden City. Uh, you could you could become a eunuch. That's your deal. <laughs> have a, have a, have a, have a go with the barking dogs. <laughs> If you're a pyromaniac, mm-hmm. uh, join a resistance movement, which is always fun. Uh-huh. Yeah. And our number five? Our number five is a Phoebe. Yeah. Where yeah. you'll see some people in togas. You might find somebody running down the street shouting Eureka. Mm-hmm. It's, it's that kind of town. Mm-hmm. Big cons are you might get like locked in an existential crisis after an argument with a philosopher. That's true. That's um, a yeah. big risk, actually. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Your whole, like, you could be there... Two week holiday in a fib, first day existential crisis, <laughs> and you're just like lying in bed reading Albert Camus for the rest of the time, mm-hmm. wondering why, and how, and whether it's all worth it. Um, but the weather would be good. Uh, so number four is the Wurmberg, uh, because it's it's a site unlike any we've got here on our um, on on our planet, uh, an inverted mountain full of dragons. I don't think you know. There's an obvious danger element there. <laughs> you may well be killed. You, you you don't like heights hanging upside down by you know hooked boots in the ceilings mightn't really be your jam. But if you're a Discworld reader, you probably have a pretty good imagination. So odds are you could imagine yourself a pretty nifty dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's her number three? Number three is Al Kelly. Yeah. So uh, you could you could go into uh, the Roxy, which the uh, the palace of the um the. The, the Seraph of Alcali, uh, where you'll be entertained, you drink sherbet apparently all the time, and have beautiful women tell stories to you. 
Uh, you could you could make your living as a as a juggler or a crossdresser like uh, Nobby Colon and Vecnari do. Um, and as as Colon himself will attest, being a that whole being a stupid fat idiot thing goes down pretty well over there. So you know, if that's uh, if that's your your uh, general way of going about things, you'll you'll flourish in Alcali. Um, number two is Genoa. Um, yeah, like parties, the the festivals, the kind of the, the mix of Mediterranean slash Cajun culture. Um, also alligators and zombies, which are pretty nice to look at, albeit from a distance. Uh, if well, we don't know what time you're arriving in this world here, if it's still under the rule of Lady Lilith when you go there, it will be at least interesting as a sort of storybook fairy tale kingdom but you might have the risk of being killed for not conforming to your archetype i don't know what my fairy tale archetype would be and i don't know whether i could conform to it you got any ideas what yours could would be not offhand okay. i'd have to give it some thought before i went there yeah. well and if if it's if it's post her rule uh you know it, you've got his cinders um taking care of it then uh Probably wouldn't be as many whistling toy makers or jolly cooks with dough in their arms, but a lot of fun and a lot less death. And our number one. Our number one really couldn't be anything else. Our number one is Ankhmore Pork. So good they named it Ankhmore Pork. Don't eat cut my own throat dibblers, hot dogs, sausages, anything else he might try to sell you. It's poison. But, you know, enjoy the area. Yeah. Visit the the Mended Drum and watch watch heroes fight like Two Flower did. Mm Mm-hmm. Don't try to approach them. Yeah. <laughs> Don't try to befriend the thugs. Take the evening courses in Unseen University. Mm-hmm. Try and learn the sound bimes way of walking around the city by the cobbles. Yeah, yeah. Uh, go go around the, the garden in the Patrician's Palace that bloody stupid Johnson made. <laughs> God, I hope there's a bloody stupid Johnson walking tour so you can see everything you ever done. Yeah, yeah. You can see those giant, uh, what is it, the, the, the cruet set that's just like, um, it's like a, pepper shaker and a salt shaker that are so big a family live in one and like, I think the other one's a silo for storing uh, grain or something um, yeah you can take the, the bloody stupid Johnson walking tour if there isn't one no doubt uh, Dibbler will start one if you express a express an interest very true um, you know and, and uh, there are seamstresses there <laughs> say <Yes>. no more <laughs> some of them are actual seamstresses yeah yeah, you've one, got, a, one. got a few tears on your journey Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so that 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 was our list of top ten Discworld tourist destinations. We'll be continuing as a regular feature where we uh, we make these little frivolous lists to uh, yeah, act in support to our, our our major main list of the books in the series. If if you have any suggestions about what lists we should make, they don't necessarily have to be top ten. They could be top five, top seven, twenty even. Although it's a bit of a tall order. Uh, by all means, um, get in touch with us on Facebook or. I'll set up a Twitter account first very soon. <laughs> uh, and if you have any, if you feel we've left anything out there of our of our list of Discworld tourist destinations, let us know about that too, and uh, we'll fight you. Uh, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. So the only question remains, basically, is is this above the color of magic? I say yes. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I think I mean, as you said right at the start, the fact that it has an anchor, a center, a plot, just um makes it uh you know he still allows himself to go off and like crazy jaunts to these uh, sort of fantasy set pieces and locations but you've got that plot there to make it feel more satisfying and more substantial and that that um like those those descriptions of like the nature of that banality of evil uh, about trimon and like Rincewind's and uh, Two Flowers parting like are moments that have much more weight than anything in The Colour of Magic you know they have uh, more uh, more more emotion and more thought behind them um, I, yeah, like I feel like they'll they're still sort of they're more powerful I suppose um, than, than like any, anything that's written in The Colour of Magic which as Pratchett himself admitted is written for the jokes you know there are a lot, a lot of very good jokes but they're not going to not going to sort of um, make you stare into the distance and think the way death's rumination and the death of the mind are. We'll edit that out. I'm just going to go. I... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they won't make you think in the way that death's rumination and the death of the mind or uh, Rincewind's uh, ideas about things worse than evil will. Um, and there's nothing quite as 
so the characters, the you know, you see more developed characters like like Cohen and and Betten and that, and um, Rinswin and Tuvla actually feel like they're on a kind of um, I suppose on a on a, on a journey with with an actual endpoint rather than just like bouncing from place to place. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's 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 it. That's our our list so far. Is number one, life fantastic. Number two, color magic. We will add equal rights to that list um, probably in about two weeks' time. Until then, uh, thanks very much for listening. Cheers.